All right, well, happy, happy Sunday, everyone. I'm glad to see you all. And uh, this is our, our eighth week looking at the Old Testament. Just to remind you of why we're, why we're looking at this in particular, you know, it's kind of been my conviction, and not just about, you know, people out there, but even my own self, to say, like, you know, how, how well do I really know the Old Testament, and how often do I use it? How often do I think in Old Testament terms? Uh, how often do I see the connections between the different parts of the Bible? I think any one of us could, could, could tell in pretty decent detail maybe a dozen or so stories from the Old Testament. Uh, if you've been around the Bible for a while, you know, maybe, maybe for you it's three and maybe for somebody else it's 25. But how much of the Old Testament do we really sort of know and uh, love? And, how, and especially, how do we see the Old Testament fitting into the big story? the whole story, the story, the overarching story of the entire Bible. Uh, and so that's been kind of our desire is to say, okay, let's connect the dots. You know, start at number one over here, but connect to number two and three and four and five on down through the whole thing, you see? So we've been trying to say, okay, how do, we, how do the different parts of the Bible reflect each other? How do they echo each other? We've been talking along those lines. So just to kind of refresh you on some of those points before we, before we get into today. Last week, we looked at the tabernacle itself, the building, and we focused especially on what did they build. We looked at the various parts of the tabernacle, the various pieces of furniture in it, if we can put it that way, and especially how Jesus himself showed how each piece of the tabernacle was fulfilled in him. So here we have the tabernacle. Here we have the various parts of the tabernacle. And Jesus fulfills them all. Do you remember how John arranged his gospel to follow the exact order of the furniture of the tabernacle to show how Jesus fulfills it all? If you weren't here last week or if you were here and would like to listen again, don't forget we're uploading these onto the web. Uh, the, the bottom line last week was this. Jesus is claiming that everything that the taber tabernacle has to offer is ultimately found in him. Do you need a sacrifice? Do you need you know, all of the things? Everything that the tabernacle is and that it has to offer is ultimately found in Him. The whole business of knowing God, of being able to see Him face to face despite our sinfulness, the whole business of being forgiven, renewed, and washed, and cleaned, and restored, and dwelling with God, the whole thing is ultimately found in Him. And a couple people at the end of the class last week said, I... I just wanted to say hallelujah at the end of that. I had like actually several people independently tell me that. And I just want to tell you, it's okay. If you feel like saying hallelujah in the middle of the class, that is A-OK. -okay. <clears throat> so uh, not to spoil the punchline of this week's lesson too badly, but we'll find the same kind of theme when we look at this week's topic. Jesus sort of being the point of it all. The, que the question we're going to ask this week about the tabernacle last week is, what, would, what did they build this week? What did they do with it? So what did they do with the tabernacle? What's one thing that comes to mind? Yeah, see, I knew that was going to be the first thing that came up. The very first thing that comes to mind when we think about the tabernacle was the sacrifice. That would be the first thing you would see if you visited the tabernacle. As you came to the tabernacle, don't forget, it's surrounded by a seven-foot-high cloth fence. And there's one doorway into it. And as you came into the doorway, the first thing you would see was what? The altar. And on the altar would be the sacrifice. But here's a question I have for you. 
why would God want a sacrifice? I mean, why is that the thing, you see? Why is that the first thing? Why is that so important? I mean, have you, is it, why would that appeal, if I can put it this way, why would that appeal to God? Hey, God, we brought you a bloody burnt carcass. And God says, awesome, that's exactly what I need, you see? Uh, it's, an odd, it's an odd business. It's a grisly business. It's an ugly business. Why would God want that? Why would that be appealing to God? It's pretty awful, really, when you think about it. Well, we've, we're looking now at the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus, in the text, uses some very interesting language to describe the sacrifice. And the language it used informed, informs us uh, of why God wants a sacrifice. So the first thing, the sacrifice is described as a gift in Leviticus. It's a gift. And what does a gift imply? If I give you a gift, what does it imply? It does, you didn't earn it. And it implies that there's some kind of relationship between us. You see, a gift implies relationship. We almost, almost never, I mean, maybe in some very rare occasions, you, you would give a gift to a stranger. But most of the time, we don't give gifts to strangers. Think about all the gifts you've given in the last six months. How many of them have been to strangers versus how many of them have been to people that you love dearly? You see? Birthdays, Christmas, those are the two in our culture, the two most important uh, events associated with gifts. These, and who do we give Christmas presents and birthday presents to? Most of all, people that we, that we love and have a relationship with. Uh, and in fact, I'll even go so far as to say this. If I was to go up to a complete stranger and give them some kind of a gift, what just happened? A relationship began. Because even if I didn't say a word to them, and then we, I just go around on my way, and I, at some point down the road, maybe a month later, they see me around town somewhere. What are they going to think? What are they going to say? <sighs> there's that guy who gave, and there's an attachment formed, you see. So even with a stranger, gift results in relationship, you see. And so that's the case uh, with Israel and the sacrifice. Israel is giving a gift to God as a token of their relationship. That's one of the things that's emphasized by the language of Leviticus. So there's a gift aspect to it. Okay, here comes another thing. Repeatedly, the sacrifice is called the bread of God. The bread of God. What does bread imply? What do you do with bread? Eat you eat it. I mean, very, very rarely do we just sort of have bread and we set it out and we just admire it and then we leave it and then we throw it away eventually. I mean, have you ever done that? Probably not very often if you have, right? Most of the time, if there's bread, what do you do with it? You eat it. So bread implies eating. But see, this is another thing. We have to ask, what does that mean? Like, does God need something to eat? <laughs> Is this, is this God's way of sustaining himself? Hey, make sure you keep giving me sacrifices, because if not, I won't be able to survive. I'm going to starve if you don't sacrifice to me, you see? Obviously not. Uh, but see, that's the imagery that's being used, is that there's, there's feeding going on here. Uh, certainly not. God doesn't need our, our sacrifice to survive. In Psalm 50, 
It says, God doesn't need your young bulls and your goats because every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. So whatever I can bring to God uh, is nothing compared to, to what is already at his disposal, right? The whole universe is at his disposal. And as a matter of fact, he's demonstrated that he has the ability to, should he ever decide to do something, all he has to do is what? Speak the words. And whatever he, whatever he wants happens. Boom. You know? So he doesn't need us. It's not about that. But is there another reason to eat besides survival? Why else do you eat besides just making sure you're not hungry? First of all, we eat to celebrate. Yeah. And then here's another thing. We eat with people. Eating, is, so this is true in our own culture, but it's especially true in ancient culture. It's especially true in ancient culture that eating is a cultural activity. It's, a, it's an activity, it's a phenomenon of fellowship. You know, there's a, a book out there, it's a management book. Uh, if you're a business guy, you might have seen or read this book. It's called Never Eat Alone. And it's about using your meal times to sort of be productive uh, and, and make relationships with people and connect with them. And, and it's, uh, anyway, I, the, the title came to my mind because in the ancient world, they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't need a book to tell them, never eat alone. In this, in this era, you would never eat alone. You would find someone to eat with and you would sit down with them and there would be fellowship. People ate together to fellowship with each other and celebrations always in the ancient Near Eastern world and even in our world, celebrations always involve food. I mean, you know, you, you, your, your wife or your husband says to you, hey, let's have a party. And what's one of the first things you think of in terms of, well, we better plan. Well, we gotta figure out what food we're gonna have, right? What would be the best food to have? We wanna have something that's easy, but doesn't look easy, you know? <laughs> so this is the significance of the sacrifices being called the bread of God. It's not that God needs the food. Uh, it's that God, here's the significance, God wants to eat with Israel. You see, this is, in the, in the ancient world, this is a big deal. Okay, so in the modern world, this is a big deal. There are people, uh, there, are, there are numerous occasions in the United Kingdom, numerous occasions held at Buckingham Palace, that sort of regular folk uh, can be invited to, and you literally receive an invitation from the Queen of England to come and be at a reception or party or meal at Buckingham Palace. You see, and when that happens, that's a big deal. And people kind of figure out, like, is there a way I can ever get, like people will spend their lifetimes saying, I would love to be invited to a reception at Buckingham Palace. And it's a similar kind of thing. The king of the universe, the maker of all things is saying, yeah, Israel, I'm gonna eat with you. You, I, I like you enough to share a meal with you. We're gonna be connected at that level. So that's why the sacrifice is called the bread of God. That's sort of the image that's being, that's being communicated there. But most importantly of all, we know this already. Uh, this is the one that maybe came to your mind first. The, the, sub, the sacrifice is a substitute. That was the first thing that came to mind was substitute. So Leviticus 1, I think is super important. Just listen to this. Leviticus 1 talks about the burnt offering. And it says, this is just one example. This is repeatedly throughout Leviticus. But listen to this. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. 
he shall bring it into the entrance of the tent of meeting that, that he may be accepted before the Lord. Now, did you hear that? Bring the sacrifice so that you can be accepted. So there's two people, two beings that enter. One of them is accepted. You see? Now, listen to verse 4. This is it. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make an atonement for him. There's a substitution going on. Two things go in, one walks out. The other one is literally annihilated, wiped away off the face of the earth. Its throat is cut. The blood is drained out. It is carved up for some of it to be consumed by the priests, and the rest of it is burnt with fire until it is no longer present on the face of the earth. You see? That's what takes place. <laughs> Here we... So, uh, <clears throat> notice this. A, a sinful person cannot offer what to God? A sinful person cannot offer what? It said in there, you have to offer something without blemish. So what can he not offer? Something with a blemish, the ultimate example of which is himself. The last thing in the world that would be an acceptable sacrifice to God, the last thing you can offer to God in this context is yourself. Because why? It has to be something with a, without blemish. What's the problem with you? I have blemishes. You see, there you go. There's the problem. So if, we, if someone in that context offered himself to God, it would be like offering the President of the United States some old stinky fish. That was the analogy I came up with. And you see, he does not look interested <laughs> in the old stinky fish. He is not impressed, you see. The thing is, that wouldn't be just gross. If, if I was like, oh, Mr. President, thank you for coming and visiting me in my home. I have a plate of delicious food for you, and I brought out the old stinky fish. It would not just be gross. It would be truly, ably, justly received as an insult. It would be an insult to someone. And so, something else must be offered. Something without spot or blemish, worthy of the recipient. It's a gift worthy of the recipient. And if I can't give myself, then I have to give something else. And so the person would choose the best thing he had. He would lay his hands on its head, which was a sign of it being designated in his place. And then he would kill the animal. And here's the imagery. This is the imagery being offered here. When he killed the animal, he was killing himself. Because it was substituting for him. Isn't that weird? When he killed the animal, he was killing himself. The sacrifice taught him, the, sac the sacrifice taught the sacrificer that the only way that he can be an acceptable gift or meal for God is through a substitute. Okay? And at that point, a new person, after the, the throat had been cut, at that point, a new person enters into the equation. And that would be the priest. Here we have one of the great clues, one of the most important lessons of the tabernacle. And that is that the animal sacrifice itself was also not enough. Because here, here's the picture of this. You see here, I come in, I walk in and I bring my lamb with me, and then I kill the lamb, and then I'm like, awesome. 
and then I get up and I just walk right into the Holy of Holies, right? No, I can't do that. I'm not allowed to do that. So even this animal sacrifice is not enough. Do you see the lesson there? There has to be a greater sacrifice. Anyone who participated in the tabernacle, anyone who was there would have been taught by the shape of the events there that the animal sacrifice that I'm offering is ultimately not enough. It's a symbol of something else. Now what does he need? Instead, so if I, if I, what do I need now? I've come, I've come and I've offered the, uh, the lamb. I've killed the lamb and in so doing I've killed myself, the symbolism there. And now what do I need? Who, who can go into, God, into God's presence for me? Do I? I need someone to intercede. That's the priest. And here we go back to something we said last week, something I really emphasized last week. Even the priesthood teaches us that ultimately it's about what? The one man. Only the one man is going to be able to go before the presence of God. You see, ultimately, even the priesthood is not enough. Even the priesthood is pointing the way to the one man. Ultimately, listen, ultimately, the only thing that will work is for the priests to finish what he started. That is me, the sacrificer. He needs the priest to finish what he started. He needs, in particular, the one man to finish the work of redemption. And what's the one act? that finishes the work of redemption. What's the one? What does the high priest do once a year that finishes the work of redemption? He walks into the presence of God and he does, what does he bring with him? Blood. And then what does he do with the blood? He puts it where? He puts it on the mercy seat. Do you see the image? Like you can't participate in the tabernacle and not learn the lesson. I can't do this on my own. My best offering is not good enough. I need the one man to come and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. The whole thing is shaped to teach anyone who's paying attention that that was the lesson. So let's describe these priests in more detail. The priests are described as the servants of God. In Leviticus, that's the language that's used of them. The servants of God. They operate the tabernacle. They protect the tabernacle. Have you ever thought of the priests as bouncers? No, this is not, I'm like, that's a funny term to put to it, but it's the real part of the job. There were priests whose job was to be the bouncer. They stood there at the entrance and said, sorry, only priests allowed in here. You may not, so I mean like if somebody just decided, I'm just going to, I'm just going to bum rush the thing. I'm just going to, I'm just going to run my way in. There were priests whose job was to stop them. Now, wait a minute. What are the priests, at that moment, what are the priests protecting? What are they protecting? So they're protecting the holy place from having something unclean go in and defile it, right? That's kind of obvious, but what else is the priest protecting? If you decided you were going to rush in there and the priest stops you, what has the priest just done? He has just saved you. He has saved you from certain death. The priest intervenes, even when you think, aha, I can do this. And the priest goes and he intervenes and he saves you from certain death. You see, who is the priest protecting? 
He's protecting the tabernacle. Who is the priest serving? He's serving the tabernacle. But who else is the priest protecting? The priest is protecting Israel from God. And the priest is, is who else is the priest serving? The priest, the priest is serving Israel by bringing them to God. You see, this intermediary place that the priest holds is a lesson to itself. And it shows the two-way nature of the salvation that God is, is, is orchestrating at the tabernacle. You see, there's, he's bringing the people of Israel into God's presence. He's also bringing God's presence out to the people of Israel. It's through the priesthood and ultimately through the one man that all of this takes place. You can't, you can't be an Israelite and pay attention to what's going on at the tabernacle and not see this and not learn this. <clears throat> so, don't forget the priests were the only tribe that had no land. And so for their work, they received the tithes and some of the sacrifices. They have no permanence or inheritance, but in, in exchange for not having a land here on this planet, in some sense, right? If I could use the imagery, they get to live with God. You see, they live in his presence. So there's, they operate this intermediary place between the presence of God and this world. And ultimately, where do they actually live? Uh, can I, can I, is this, is this bad language? I don't know if this, am I saying this right? They live at the right hand of the Father. You see, there's, maybe that's, maybe that's going too far, but I'm trying to show you how these things reflect each other. <clears throat> the priests wore special clothes. Exodus 28 describes the special clothes in great detail. The clothes are, uh, interestingly, as much a mark of shame as they are a mark of pride. You know, we look at the clothes and we say, wow, that's like really sort of regal regalia, kind of beautiful. It's got gold and, and stones on it. But it's interestingly in the description, in the language, in the attitude of the text, it's as much a mark of shame as it is pride because their clothes were a visible reminder that they represented the 12 tribes of Israel before the face of God. Especially that breastplate that has the, the stones for the 12 tribes on it. So as they go into God's presence, figuratively speaking, what does God see? God sees the 12, right? And so the priest is going into God's presence and he's bearing the marks of the sinful people. Familiar kind of language? He's going into God's presence, bearing the marks of the sinful people. Uh, I hope all this stuff just kind of echoes some things for you. Uh, most importantly... The priest, oh, I already, already covered that. Um, there's a lot of other imagery that happens with the tabernacle sacrifices that if you were to read through the book of Leviticus, you would see the descriptions of, uh, you know, fire consumes the sacrifice until it is fully and finally destroyed. And we could, we could spend a week just talking about the fire. Uh, the smoke circles upward. It's described as an aroma for God to smell so that he can know that the necessary sacrifice has taken place. We could, just, we could go on and on describing that. The sacrifice is completed. Think about this. The sacrifice is always finished with a meal. Because what's the last thing that exists from the sacrifice? is the meat that has been carved off. And then what happens to the meat? It's consumed. And who consumes it? The priest does. You see? So there's, it's concluded with a meal. Even the sacrificer would receive, in, the, in some circumstances, in the descriptions of some of the sacrifices in Leviticus, uh, 
as the animal is carved up, even the sacrificer sometimes receives some of the meat. And so uh, even the sacrificer is allowed to participate in the meal of God, you see? All these different things are at play here. There were a variety of animal sacrifices. There's quite a host of different kinds. You can read about them in Leviticus 1 through 7, and each of them gives kind of a different glimpse of the shape of salvation. All the sacrifices together made it possible for Israel to live safely with God. Think about this. Sin and uncleanness are very dangerous when God lives next door. Right? When God lives next door, sin and uncleanness are very dangerous. And so the priests, their job, this sacrifice, this whole business, was to make it possible for God and man to dwell together. That's what's going on here. But here's a, here's a new question. Let's ask a new question. Did it work? Was the tabernacle successful? Did the sacrifices save Israel? Did this whole thing that God spends so much time on, so much effort to lay out all the details, he says, here's what I want you to do. Did it work? Was it successful? Well, let me just tell you, the entire book of Hebrews answers that question. The purpose of the book of Hebrews is to answer that question. And surprisingly, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says, no, it did not work. The tabernacle was not successful, and it did not save Israel. The section of Hebrews that particularly focuses on the tabernacle slash temple is that section there that I've got marked out from the middle of chapter 4 to the middle of chapter 10. It begins specifically in that section looking at the tabernacle, the priests, and the sacrifices in detail, chapter after chapter after chapter, right through the majority of the book, the heart of the book, the, the, the you know, that's, uh, that represents uh, what's the percentage. I mean, more than half of the book of Hebrews is spent on saying, and, and here's how everything that happened at the tabernacle ultimately didn't work. Wait a minute, Brian, you say. Actually, let me read. Here's, I, just, I do want to read you this. Just, uh, I'll read you one example. This is from chapter 10. Chapter 10, beginning at verse 1, and then I'm going to skip down a little bit. This is, this is kind of the conclusion section of the whole thing. Chapter 10, at verse 1, it says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, it can never, never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, could no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. He says, Look, if this stuff worked, they would have done it, and it would have stopped. Instead of a once-and-for-all salvation, what the sacrifices are actually doing is annually reminding Israel of their sin and their need for salvation. That's the lesson in this. For it is as for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is impossible. 
If it's impossible for the blood of a bull or a goat to take away sins, then how many sins were taken away when the priest killed a bull or a goat? Is that hard news? Here at the beginning of verse 11, it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That's what he says. But when Christ had offered for, a time, for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So you say, Brian, wait a minute. If the tabernacle didn't work, if it never could work, if it was impossible for the blood of a bull to, be, to take away anyone's sin, then why did God do all that? Why did he do it? Why didn't he just sort of like, okay, skip to the, skip to the end, <laughs> you know? We'll just fast forward this part of the movie, and we'll just get to the end and see what happens, and you know, cut right to the chase, send the Savior, get it done, you see? Why didn't it work? I mean, if it didn't work, why did God have him do it in the first place? Well, to answer that, let's go all the way back to our first class eight weeks ago. And remember, principle one. The Old Testament is not about us, right? And remember at that time, I said, who's the main character in Macbeth? And then you said, Macbeth. And I said, what if I told you Lennox or Banquo was the main character of Macbeth? What would you say? You would say, well, then why is it not called Banquo? You know? <laughs> it's called Macbeth, Brian, for a reason, right? Uh, and, you know, back then we said, you know, so often we read the Bible and we ask, like, okay, what does this have to do with me? And that's a valid question. We're supposed to learn something from it. That was principle two, right? We are supposed to learn something from it. But we have to ask certain questions first. I'm not the first question. I don't say, I don't start reading the Old Testament by saying, uh, what does this teach me about me? Uh, we start by saying, what does this teach us about Christ? Who's the main character in the story? Jesus. So what does it teach us about Jesus? Now I think with that perspective, if you look at the sacrificial system of the tabernacle, you look at everything God instructs, you look it down to the minutest detail. And you're if you're looking, I think, if you're looking to learn about Jesus, the whole thing makes a lot more sense. Why would God want Israel to go through all these complicated motions? God wanted to teach Israel, and he wanted to teach us, as we read about it centuries later, he wanted to teach everyone who's paying attention about the main character in the story, which is Jesus himself. God wanted to teach us all the things that we need to know about our salvation. You say, well, man, it, that whole system was so complicated. There were so many details. Okay, what do you learn about the salvation offered through Christ from that? It's a complicated business. This is not an easy, quick fix type of situation. God wanted us to learn how complicated this whole was, this whole thing was. How costly it was. How horrible it was. You say, man, I would, I'm so glad that I didn't live back in the day and have to sit there and, you know. Yeah, me too. Yeah. 
It was awful. And most of all, I think more than anything else, overall, in case I haven't emphasized this enough in the last two weeks, I think more than anything else, God is teaching anyone who's paying attention to this whole drama that they need to look to the one man. The, can I put it this way? The man of God's own choosing. The man of God's own choosing. The high priest doesn't choose to be the high priest. Hey, guys, I'll be the high priest. Vote for me. That's not how it worked. God said, okay, I'll tell you who the high priest is. You see, it's him. And if, if you're going to be saved, it's going to have to come through him. You see, that's the pattern being established. And I think every, every piece of this, God is trying to give us, and anyone in, over the centuries who's been paying attention, a deeper and deeper and deeper understanding, a fuller picture of the drama, the story that is Jesus. You see, if Genesis 3 ends and Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, and then Genesis 4 is, you know, shepherds and wise men. and <laughs> I don't, is it, What do we even know about it, you know? We were, meant to, we were meant to notice that the offering never lasts. We were meant to notice how the high, even the high priest's work had to be repeated over and over again. And thus the whole tabernacle system would teach anyone who paid attention to look for someone even greater than the high priest. Anyone who watched and understood, who was there and saw it, would understand more than this is needed. You see? And that's how Israel was saved. When they watched the events of the tabernacle, it would direct their minds to the Messiah. We need the one to come. We need Jesus, ultimately, who would eventually declare that he was everything that the tabernacle represented. Everything, as we talked about last week. Jesus declared, I'm all of it. I'm the tabernacle. I'm all the stuff in the tabernacle. I'm the priest. And I'm the sacrifice. Just as the sinner was figuratively killing himself when he killed the lamb, so too Jesus serves as both priest and sacrifice in the, ta- in the true tabernacle of God. And don't forget, if Jesus is all of it, That means all of it. That means he has to become the sinner too. The person bringing the sacrifice into the tabernacle. If Jesus is all of it, he becomes the sinner too. Do you see the image there? That's the pattern. According to Hebrews, Jesus is the greater high priest, the ultimate servant of God, the great protector of Israel, the fulfillment of the tabernacle, and the one who provides everything for our salvation. Amen. Hallelujah. All right, as we have every week, we'll finish with this. What, what, use would it, what use is what I've learned today? Each week we've given three topics based on three different kinds of people. If you're not a Christian, I think the idea of sacrifice is, is sometimes off-putting to someone today who reads this part of the Old Testament. It's kind of nasty. They read it and they're like, bleh. It's all bloody and smelly. The smoke and the fire and the stench, it's kind of gross. It's kind of a nasty and primitive thing, and I'm glad that I don't have to experience anything like that today. Well, as I've already said, I'm glad I don't too. You know, I don't think anybody wants to. I have no desire to do any of that. But let me ask you, if you're not a Christian, what if, what if that kind of thing was what was necessary for you to survive? Would you do it if you had to? 
Would you do it if it was necessary? How many of you saw the movie Unbroken or read the book? You remember they, uh, the, the, the pelican or whatever it was lands in the raft and they grab onto it and they kill it and they try it. And that one doesn't turn out to work very well, if you remember. But, you know, if you were on a raft and uh, your survival depends on it, you're willing to do a lot of things you wouldn't normally be willing to do in real life. Is that right? Listen, what if our situation as human beings really is that bad? What if it's as bad as God is telling, it, telling us it is at the tabernacle? God gave us these images to teach us about our need and how bad our situation really is. And he gave them to us to teach us about our Savior, how far he is willing to go on our behalf. He took the whole business onto himself, and he was so, success, listen, he was so successful at it that we don't have to do any of it anymore. You see, the reason you don't have to offer this kind of terrible sacrifice anymore is because it's already been taken care of. Okay, now, uh, if you're a new Christian, or if, if you, that is, if you're new to Christ, if you're a veteran Christian, if you've been around this for a while, my challenge for you this week is the same, uh, and it is a bit of a challenge. I really do think, I, I, <laughs> I suspect that it's been a while since you read Leviticus. Uh, I really do encourage you to read Leviticus. It's a, it is still, it's a hard read. Uh, and, and, you know, the vast, I mean, even thinking, how do, what does this teach me about Jesus? Uh, it's still hard. And it still is a challenge to say, okay, I, I got to, you know, it's, there's so many, there's just so many details, so many sacrifices, so many descriptions, so many measurements. And I mean, just like all the details. But I think if you read it uh, this time with an eye to what does this tell me about the true main character of this story? I, th I, I believe, you can tell me if, if I'm wrong about this, but I would bet that you're going to get more out of it this time. That would be my guess. Okay? So that's, uh, that's where we'll conclude for today. Next week, uh, you can read in advance if you want uh, the book of Numbers. <laughs> the whole thing. The whole book of Numbers. That's what we're going to do next week. We're going to do the whole book of Numbers next week. Does that sound like a challenge? I think so, too. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Uh, thank you so much, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for being our sacrifice, for being our priest, for being our tabernacle, for being our everything. Thank you for sprinkling your blood on the mercy seat. Once and for all. In, in such a way, which is, with such uh, permanent efficacy that it never has to happen again. Oh, we, we marvel at you and we praise your name this morning. Amen.